Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Well, I love Ross and Paula and their story. And uh, I mean, I wish I could just uh, share everybody's story. I mean, uh, just to be able to sit down and to hear uh, how God has prompted them and used them. And they're such a good example of what it means just to serve in simplicity and faithfulness uh, and to care for people. And so uh, uh, we're so grateful for that. And uh, we're in a series of talks, as I mentioned in the video, called Proving Ground. We're going to be in a passage of Scripture in just a second in Hebrews chapter 10 and then in Joshua chapter 6. But before we get there, um, I also want to share with you a couple of things because one thing Ross mentioned in there was doing it together about needing each other. And uh, this past week, uh, last Sunday, as a matter of fact, we had our Journey Basics, which we do like three times a year uh, and bring people in. It's kind of like an orientation slash membership class uh, to kind of help you navigate your way around. And we had our biggest attendance that we've ever had. We had right at 70 adults uh, that uh, came and uh, walked through that together. I think we got a few pictures. We'll kind of roll through up there. You can kind of see uh, the environment a little bit. Uh, but I just want to say this uh, to uh, the church. I mean, you had several people that have come on and said, hey, I want to take a step and become a part of the family. And so I just wanted us to welcome them uh, today just with a uh, applause real quick, just to say, hey, thank you. Or welcome to the family. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, and uh, we're walking through all that, and everybody's kind of finding their place to plug in, and we're so excited about what God's going to do in this next season uh, through all of us together uh, as we all lock arms. I do want to tell you one more thing before we get in the passage. Uh, Mother's Day is just around the corner. That's not just an announcement, okay? That's not just to go out and get ready, though it is that. The other thing we do around here, we started last year, uh, is we provide a uh, Mother's Day meal for single moms, uh, and we're going to be doing that again in two weeks, and I'm letting you know now because this is something we all do together. Uh, obviously, all moms work uh, really hard, uh, but uh, on Mother's Day, we want to take care of single moms because uh, sometimes uh, uh, they're the ones uh, that you know, are taking care of all the details. We want to kind of take a load off that day and just say, hey, as far as the meal is concerned, we want to show you love. We want to take care of you. Uh, I share that for two reasons. One is if you are a single mom or you know of one, there's a link on our website that you can click on to register, and it's open to anybody. They don't have to be members of our church. Uh, this is for the community. I think last Last year, as our first year, uh, we served right at uh, 100 single moms, and uh, we're hoping to continue to grow that in years to come to be able to bless the entire city of Jonesboro. Uh, and you can help us to do that by sharing it on social media, letting people you know, tagging people you know. We want to do as much as we can. And so there's a place to register, and that just lets us know how many meals to prepare, prepare okay? Uh, and when we prepare, we're also purchasing meals. And so that's the second thing I want to tell you about uh, that you can take part in is you can actually... Uh, basically support or um basically provide one meal for $25. And there is a link for that uh, on our homepage of our website as well. Uh, and so if you would like to take care of one family, one single mom, uh, you can do that for $25. Just go in there, click a link. Every dime uh, that you donate toward that goes directly to pay uh, and furnish a meal for four, okay? And so um, let's all do that together and let's just see what God does as we love on our community and love on single moms uh, all together as a church. Um, we are in a series of talks called uh, Proving Ground and we've been looking a lot of famous stories in Scripture. Uh, we've just been dropping down into the narrative uh, that is an ongoing narrative of God's interaction with His people. And we've learned a few things. One of the primary things we've learned is that faith uh, down here on the ground is where faith is actually proven. 
uh, that, it, that faith is not just some mystical, uh, philosophical thing, that uh, faith is lived out in relationships, jobs, finances. Uh, it is uh, what we do day to day when we get up and we go to bed. Uh, it's all those things, all different seasons of our life. Uh, it's not just for old people or young people or middle-aged people. It's all across the spectrum. It's for all of us. And so faith is lived out. Uh, and it's lived out primarily, we've learned, not because of the faithfulness of us as individuals, but because of the faithfulness of God. And we've been able to trace God's hand of faithfulness uh, consistently in individuals' lives. But what we haven't really visited is what we're going to visit today, is that faith is not just individual, it's actually corporate. That faith has uh, intrinsically connected to it. It's inextricably connected to a corporate faith. Um, And this kind of flies in the face of kind of modern day views of Christianity, uh, or just a, if you're not a Christian, maybe it's just kind of your view of spiritual matters. It's like, hey, you've got your own thing going on, and I totally get that. And if you're coming today and you're kind of wrestling, is this the direction I want to go? I totally understand. Questions are good. Doubts are good. Uh, I, I highly encourage you to investigate, make the best decision possible uh, for you. But what I would also encourage you to do is to understand that whatever you decide, wherever you go, that faith in the end was not designed just to be something individual. Uh, And that's kind of hard for us in in modern United States of America and Western mindset to kind of digest. But we're going to look at a story today that has everything to do with corporate faith and has everything to do with understanding what the nature of faith truly is so that we can experience it corporately together. And so we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 6. It's a famous story in the Old Testament. But in order to get there, we're going to build a bridge through a New Testament passage in Hebrews chapter 10. So I want to read this, uh, uh, this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, and I want to do it for a reason. I'll let you know what it is, but let me read it first, and then we're going to springboard into Joshua chapter 6. This is what the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says. He says, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And he quotes, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Now, I say this because sometimes when we read Old Testament stories, kind of these famous stories, the ones that... Uh, even if you're not really familiar with church, you might have heard before, you know, stories like David and Goliath, Daniel and Lion's Den. I, I think the story that we're going to cover today uh, with uh, uh, the city of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down and all that kind of stuff, it kind of takes on a life of its own. And, and sometimes those stories can kind of be personal admonitions and kind of we treat them as uh, like uh, fables or something like that, something that's supposed to give us kind of a, uh, an encouragement to go out and tackle uh, our, our, our enemy and all those kind of things. But the nature of those Old Testament stories that we're going to look at is actually highlighted in this passage in Hebrews chapter 10. You see, Hebrews chapter 10 is written to uh, an early church that was struggling. They were going through a lot of difficulties. They were having to persevere. They were under a lot of pressure, uh, a lot of persecution in that day. Uh, They were asking this predominant and prevailing question. They were saying, is this worth it? Uh, Is this real? Is is this really what it's truly about? Because the decision I'm making based off of what uh, I've said I believe is actually right here, here on this proving ground is, is actually proving to be quite difficult to the point where I might want to cash it in and go a different direction. And so the writer of Hebrews writes to this early fledgling struggling church and he says, hey, listen, I want to remind you what this whole thing is built around. 
And actually in Hebrews chapter 10, it's actually a transition passage because what he's been doing up to this point is he's been talking about Jesus. He's been talking and say, hey, let me just, let's just stare at Jesus for a second. Let's talk about the substance of who he is. Let's talk about the, the depth of who he is. Let's just kind of get our eyes focused on Jesus for a second. And then he transitions in chapter 10 and says, now here's why that matters. Here's what I want to do. I want you to take who Jesus is, what you've just seen. I want to reinforce. I want to encourage you because faith is right here on the ground. It is not shrinking back. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, hey, listen, we are the type of people that we don't shrink back. It's kind of like that halftime speech that the coach gives you when you're down a few points or a lot of points, uh, and he kind of gets in your face, and he says, hey, listen, listen, this is not who we are. Remember who we are. Remember what got us here. Remember the foundation and where we're going. And it's kind of that halftime speech, if you will, in the middle of Hebrews chapter 10, where he says, hey, let's, let's just remember the promise of Jesus. And let's persevere because we are not the type of people that shrink back. We are not the type of people that pull back. We are the ones that lean in. We go the distance. And then what he does is he takes this group of people that are identified corporately as the people of God. And he says, listen, here I want to give you the definition of what faith actually is. What am I talking about when I say we're the type of people that have faith? He gives us his definition. He says, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now the ancients, the ancients, he springboards into this long list of famous stories. And one of those stories is the story that we're gonna look at today. He talks about Noah, he talks about Abraham, he talks about Rahab, he talks about Jericho. And he talks about all the times in God's uh, people's past that how they have had to trust in the promise of God and how they've had to actually persevere through the promise of God. And so what he actually alludes to is a definition of faith that is a little bit counterintuitive to what maybe we're ready, we readily exceed, uh, receive or believe uh, in 2021, or maybe, maybe it's new information to you, because what I would say is that what he's actually asserting is that faith is not blind faith, it's not uh, just a leap of faith, it's actually something that's rooted in something, I'm just gonna take a non-spiritual word, something I'm just gonna say is evidence. Evidence is actually just something that is an outward sign or an indication, or it's something that furnishes proof. Uh, I think people of faith sometimes, um, and, and some of this is our own fault, we, we get accused of um, not being very smart, uh, of not looking at the facts. Uh, and sometimes faith can be like that. It can be like just sticking your head in the sand and acting like you don't see reality out there. And I, I certainly get that. Uh, there's been people that have mishandled the word of God and misused it uh, through, uh, through the centuries and up until today. And uh, uh, people would look at that and go like, well, it did, what you're saying doesn't make sense. It doesn't match up. It's not, it's not very smart what you're saying. But what I would suggest to you today is that true faith, biblical faith, is not th something that denies reality. It's not something that just says, okay, well, I, I, I'm just going to kind of not even deal with the questions of life. Faith in its essence is built on evidence. Faith biblically for God's people has always been about thinking. It's always been about seeing. And it's always been about deciding based on evidence. And so what I want to provide for you today is kind of my take on corporate faith and how corporate faith is lived out and how evidence and what we see has everything to do with what God wants to do in us on the proving ground. 
So let's jump in with that. Hopefully we've got the same mindset here. I don't want you to hear this just in terms of like, hey, what's your personal enemy? I want you to hear it from corporate thought and corporate eyes because I think that's the context that God provides for us in what Hebrews alludes to. This is one of the ancients he was talking about. Joshua chapter six. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Now, where are we talking about here? Okay, let's go to school for a second. Jericho is uh, immediately the first city on the other side of the Jordan River. You would ask, well, why is that important? Well, at this point in the story, there's a lot of history behind us. And what has pretty much happened up to this point is God has brought the people of God out of captivity in Egypt. Uh, he set them on a journey. He's parted the Red Sea. He, he's moved them into uh, what's supposed to be called the promised land, uh, the land of promise, the land that was flowing with milk and honey. Now, I, that might not sound too intriguing to you or inviting, but for them, uh, it meant everything. It meant a place where you were not uh, underneath the hand or the thumb of Pharaoh. It meant that you were able to live in freedom and fullness an abundance of life and uh, actually in relationship and actually become and fulfill uh, God's promise to you, who you were supposed to be. Well, as it goes, the story is not of our faithfulness to God, but his faithfulness to us immediately after they get there, almost immediately, uh, they fail God. They turn away from God. Uh, they begin to follow other gods. They begin to doubt God. They begin to murmur against God and grumble against God. And then the story just becomes so much about how they fail to respond to the faithfulness of God. Well, what God does, and that is he gives them over to the consequence uh, of their sin and their failure, and a whole generation of people dies in the wilderness and doesn't get to go in the promised land. And Joshua lived through that, all, that whole thing. He lived through all of that. And now what has happened is Moses has passed away and the baton has been passed to him. And now faith lived out corporately is now led by Joshua in a new generation. And so what happens is they go over the Jordan River, they, uh, they, they find the first place that is going to, they're going to have to overcome and walk through. It's the first problem they face, and it's, it's really signified in the place of Jericho. And, it, and, and we're really kind of keyed into the whole thought process of the passage, because it says that the, uh, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in or no one went out. Now, simultaneously, with the promise of God that all these good things were gonna happen is God was really honest with them. God was uh, completely intellectually honest with them. He said, listen, when you go out, it's not all gonna be great. You're gonna have, uh, you're gonna have some difficulty. A matter of fact, you're gonna come against some things that are gonna seem like they're gonna prevail against you. And so intertwined into the promise of abundance was also a promise of problems. And you really get a, a really clear, succinct picture of that all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter nine, verse one, because as they crossed the Jordan, they saw Jericho and this is what they saw. They saw what God had told them they would see. Here, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. Now, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, this is a really good um, example of this. There's a lot of hyperbole in things. Uh, it didn't mean that they really literally had uh, walls all the way up to the sky, all the way up to the clouds. It just means that when you stood in front of this fortress, when you stood in front of these walls, you're going to feel about that tall. You're going to feel diminutive. You're going to feel small. You're going to feel insignificant. You're going to feel weak. 
And so what happens is when you cross the Jordan, Joshua now has been passed the baton, it's his turn to express corporate faith in the next generation. As he comes across the Jordan, the first thing he sees is he sees these gigantic walls. Now, what does it look like? Just to kind of give you a mental picture. Um, basically, if you could imagine kind of a tiered landscape. Uh, there was an excavation of Jericho back in the 50s. It's really famous. It was one of the most, uh, the biggest finds uh, uh, in history, actually. And you can kind of go look it up. But basically what it, t- what it talks about is there was about a 30-foot embankment uh, of a wall. And then there was a flattening and a slight tier up. And then there was a second wall. And inside that second wall was where the city actually was. There was kind of some um, you know, armaments in between those two tiers. But if you can imagine, the, the height of this would have been about 80 total feet is what they, what they excavated, what they, uh, uh, they kind of speculate was the actual height of this. And so if you're uh, an, an ancient and you come up on this 80-foot structure and you're small, all right, uh, they haven't, been, uh, they haven't uh, built uh, scissor lifts yet, <laughs> you know, uh, anything like that. Like, how are you going to get up there? What are you going to do? Well, now Joshua comes and everything's locked up. And he sees what looks like to him a wall that goes up into the sky. And so what happens when you have to live out faith on the ground when what you see doesn't match what God said? Well, that leads us to the first step of what I think is an expression of faith. I actually have six of these, okay? So some of y'all are freaking out right now. I I told the, the, the group at nine that was in here to service at nine, I probably won't get to six, and I was exactly right. So I have six points. I'm only going to get to five, okay? So y'all can all kind of breathe a sigh of relief, and you can go eat lunch in a minute. Um, I'm just saying that as a disclaimer because I'm not trying to cut off the end. I'm just not going to get there, okay? So the first call of faith, though, is the first one. The first call of faith is a call to see. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king, and it's fighting men. Now, let me ask you just a really practical question because faith is real. Faith is not denying reality. Faith is actually embracing reality. If you're standing at the bottom of an 80-foot structure and you've been told, hey, you know, go up and take that city, what about that picture actually suggests to you that they have been handed over to you? Everything, practically speaking, would suggest to you quite the opposite. Uh, it would actually pre- presume to uh, uh, actually tell you that the opposite is true, that you're not going to be able to take this. You're going to be weaker. They're going to be stronger. They're tall. I'm small. I'm not going to be able to get up there. But here's the thing. Faith always has to do with what you see. Paul would say it best later in the New Testament to the church at Corinth when he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. That faith is actually fully embracing the reality, but it has everything to do with what we see. And you can look at the same thing and actually see two different things. You see, Joshua has been here before. Much of what you get in Joshua is kind of a, 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 a replay. It's a flashback uh, looking back to something that happened, and it's a replay of what he's flashing back to. Well, what was that? Well, much like what was happening on this day had happened the generation before, and it didn't go so well. Matter of fact, it had everything to do with what they, what they saw. You see, when they first crossed over and they were supposed to take, take the land, uh, 
Moses did this, I mean, it's a smart thing. He sent in spies into the land and they were, their job was to go see the land. They were going to go see. And so they went and saw it. They came back. There was 12 of them. Joshua was one of those. Caleb was another. And then there was 10 others. And they came back and they told Moses what they saw. Now let's flash back for a second because this has everything to do with Joshua's now current proving ground situation. If you go back to Numbers 13, Caleb silenced the people before Moses and he said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up, excuse me, had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. Now watch what happens in verse 32. Verse 32 says, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. So the spies, their job tasked with, go see the land. They went and saw the land they came back with a certain report. What was their report? They're just like, hey, we can't do this. Uh, everything we see there, I mean, it, it's trouble. Uh, it, it looks problematic. It looks difficult. Uh, it looks really dangerous. It's so dangerous that they're going to they're gonna overcome us. Uh, they're going to take our wives. They're going to take our children. We're not going to survive this. Uh, it's going to be really, really bad. As a matter of fact, when we look at them, we, we look like grasshoppers to them, and we look like grasshoppers to ourselves. Uh, we look really, really small. Now, Joshua and Caleb, when they looked at the situation, they said, oh, no, we can totally do it. Now, did they see the same thing? They saw, in reality, the exact same obstacle. But what they actually saw was two completely different realities. And it has everything to do with what you see. You see, what Moses did in the previous generation is exactly the same strategy that Joshua did. Joshua equally sent in spies into the land. You can read about it in Joshua chapters 1 and 2 uh, and 3. As he sends them into the land, they come back with a report. Now, the way the report came back with them in Joshua chapter 2 says that when they left, the they is the spies, I mean, the, the people that were hunting down the spies, they went into the hills and they stayed there for three days until the pursuers uh, had uh, had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. And then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given us the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear. Uh, I kind of mistakenly said that. It, this is, these are the spies that came back out. Uh, they're now reporting back to Joshua. What did they say? Well, remember what Joshua sees. Joshua is standing in front of the wall and everything uh, is locked up tight. The gates are locked up. It looks fortified. It looks impenetrable. But what the spies saw is they saw the reason behind the locking of the gates. What they saw was a group of people that were fearful. And so what it means is that they looked at the exact same thing. They looked at these walls and you could come to com two completely different conclusions. One is they're locking up the gates because they're scared of us. One is the walls are so big and I'm scared of them. And what this suggests to us is simply this, is that we can look at the exact same set of circumstances and see two completely different realities. 
And this provides for us a template of how God has always operated with his people and how he always calls us to see by faith. Here's the template and just kind of, you can drop this down and you can see it, I think, in most stories. Here's a, a call to see. I think it looks like this. It always begins with a promise. God begins with a promise. He says, this is what I'm doing. Uh, that means that faith is actually not saying, hey, God, come do this, and this is what I really want you to do for me. Faith is initiated by what God has, is working out in creation history. And so he's saying, this is what I'm up to. But here's the goodness of God. God also always provides. And so you see a pattern of provision after that. God is actually providing for his promise. He's working things out toward his promise. But what that means here on the ground between the provision uh, and, and us is there's always a problem in front of us. There's always God who is a provider behind us. And we look at a situation in front of us and we see a problem. And what that calls us to see is it calls into question a matter of perspective. So we're, look, we're supposed to look at a situation and we're supposed to take into account the promise of God. We look at the provision of God in the past and then we look at the problem in front of us and then we, as a matter of decision, based on the evidence of those two realities, we make a decision which is faith. It's assessing, it's responding to what we see. Now, this is completely different than what a lot of us approach faith. We approach faith like, oh, it's just something some people have it, some people don't. Um, certain people just grew up in the right family. Uh, certain people grew up in the right place. Faith is not necessarily for us all the time something that's that, that's that intellectual uh, or that's analytical. Uh, and some of us it is. But what I think this actually prompts all of us to do is to see faith through the lens of what God has done and then we look here on the ground and we say, what is God calling us to do? And we don't just do that alone. We don't just do that as individuals. We do that together. And the reason I say that is that the very next part of the passage calls us to understand faith as a call to everyone. Watch what happens in verses three and following. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry the trumpets and the ram's horns in front of the ark on the seventh day. March around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast uh, on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. And then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up and then everyone will go straight in. So what is the call? The call is not what happens so many times in modern uh, arenas where our faith is our own curated experience. Um, for many of us, we're on a personal faith journey. We, we even say that. And I definitely think that we all are. I, I think that there is an individual aspect to faith. But I think that if the biblical writers were to show up today, if they were to walk in to Jonesboro, Arkansas, Journey Church uh, on this day at the end of April, they would see a lot of things that would not make sense to them. Uh, they would, uh, not that everything we're doing is bad, um, and not that everything we're doing is wrong, they, there's just a lot of things that are not just, um, I think, changed because of the time gap. I think there's just a un different understanding. And one of the things that's probably uh, embedded within our thinking in modern America is that uh, we're just a collection of individuals. Uh, that, uh, you know, we're going to leave here, we get kind of our thing, we're going to go out and we're going to do our next thing next week, and I'm, I'm, I just kind of do my own thing. And so we kind of dip our toe in the water on a lot of different things, but oftentimes faith is not really a corporate thing where we feel connected, and there's a lot of reasons for that that have to be ta tackled. 
But at the very foundational level, there was an understanding, if you really dig into Scripture and you follow the story, is that corporate faith was always something that was at the core of what God was up to. He wasn't just creating individuals that have a personal relationship with God. He was creating a people that um, actually live out faith together. Now, here's the thing. If individual faith is messy, how do you think corporate faith is going to go? Corporate faith is going to be messy. Corporate faith is going to be difficult. Uh, The failures are not just going to be individual failures. Everything is going to be interconnected. And that's the story that you get at Jericho. The story, the call, the charge was a call for everyone together to go forward, not for a select few. It was with, the, with Joshua and the leadership. It was with the priest. It was with the army. And then it was for everyone. And there was this connectedness to what God was doing. Why? Because God was doing something in a people. And I really believe that uh, for faith to be what faith was designed to be, then it has to have a corporate dynamic to it. And you would have to assess, as I do, of what the implication of that is with your own life, uh, of what steps God's calling you to make to remedy that and not be isolated in your faith and what he's pushing you and pulling you into with that because it was a call to everyone. And the call to everyone was really unique because at the middle of the call to everyone was also this call to remember. I mean, we just kind of did this. No, we didn't kind of, we did this because remember what Jesus said, um, He said, hey, listen, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. It was a tangible act. Well, God's always called us to remember. Why? Because we remember past provision as we move into current and future problems. The way it worked out there was Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest, and he said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. So the first call for Joshua to the people, remember, this is for everyone. He says, hey, listen, we need to get the Ark of the Covenant here. Now, uh, this is a whole sermon series in itself, and so uh, I'm just going to give you a very, very, very abridged version of this. But essentially what this is, is the, the Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God. It signified the presence of God. It, had, it was a chest, basically, like a box, and it had uh, contents in it. Uh, I don't mean to be... Um, and crass or, uh, you know, blasphemous at all. But it, the easiest way I can think about it is if you have that box in your closet, maybe I'm the only one that does this or in the attic, and you've got some old mementos in it, things that have meaning attached to them. And you sometimes you can go back and you can pull those things out and it elicits a response from you because of the meaning. It's not because of the object. It's what the object means to it. That's kind of what you have. And what it recounts in the tablet, I mean, in the Ark of the Covenant were uh, really three specific things that all were reminders, tangible reminders of God's past provision. The first one was what's called the uh, tablets of testimonies. Uh, You might not have heard it called that way, but it's, uh, uh, you said the Ten Commandments. Uh, And the reason it's called the Tablets of Testimony is because it was a testimony of the covenant of God with his people. When they came out, uh, God had to say, well, this is who I am. They didn't really know God. They didn't know Yahweh, all right? And so God was kind of introducing, this is who I am. And what did he do? He didn't just give them a list of rules. The rules or the the law that he gave them was a reflection of who he was so that they could know who this God is. And so God is completely true, so we don't lie, you know? God is faithful, so we don't commit adultery, so on and so forth. So this is a testimony to how God had provided for them and God had initiated a covenant with them. He promised himself to them. 
Also inside there was the contents of uh, Aaron's rod that budded, uh, Numbers 16 and 17. You can read that whole account. Uh, it's kind of a, a funny, you know, it, uh, Aaron's rod that budded. That kind of sounds weird. But basically, it was a whole uh, issue that had taken up with Moses and Aaron. And there was a, uh, another priest that had had uh, some backing and tried to overthrow Moses and Aaron. And in order to prove that Aaron was in the right position and that Moses was the true leader, they actually put this staff down and they said, you know, whoever staff kind of blossoms, then that will be a testimony for God that he's provided leadership. And this is who it is. And so sure enough, it was Aaron's rod. And so they took that, they placed it in the ark and they carried it around with them. And then the last thing was a golden pot of hidden manna. Manna was the provision for God's people. Even though they failed, God continued to provide for them. And so they scooped some of it up. They put it in uh, a golden jar, basically, and placed it in there. And it was supposed to be a tangible reminder of God's past provision. And so where did God tell them to put it? Where did jo uh, Joshua tell them to put it? Put it right in the middle. Why in the middle? So that everybody in the back can see it. Everybody in the front can protect it because God's presence the call to remember is always at the center of God's people. And this is what we do today. When we took communion today and what we do every day as believers is we do that exact same thing as we come around the person of Jesus Christ. That passage in Hebrews, it actually ends up, the summation of it that I read earlier from Hebrews chapter 10 and, and chapter 11 verse 1, it actually kind of summarizes in Hebrews chapter 12 and said, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That's the proving ground that we run, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now, what do we do? We come around and we say, we remember Jesus. Jesus is our permanent provision. He is our pioneer and he's our perfecter. I memorized this verse a long time ago and the, the version I have memorized is really good, um, but... I, it says that he's the author and perfecter of our faith. Some of y'all's translations may say that, but I really, the more I thought about it, I, I really like pioneer. I, I, I like the fact that it says that, and here's why, is because we don't just have a God that writes the story, we've got one that lives the story. A pioneer, if you think about what it is, may go back to Lewis and Clark or something like that, uh, or the first people in space. Uh, what is that? They're pioneers, they're going somewhere that you haven't been yet. And what do we have with Jesus? We have a pioneer. We have a God who actually went somewhere before we got there. And what does he do? Because he already did it, now he can perfect us in it. That means that his, um, his faithfulness is transferred to us and empowers us through our failure. And so there's a, there's a big part of this that when we struggle in life, to go through life and apply faith to our life, it's always a decision of what we see it's always a decision, are we doing it together? And it's always a decision to actually remember Jesus, to focus on him and not ourselves, to focus on the provision and not the problem. And there's always a point of decision. But the point of decision in a matter of faith is always to be a catalyst for something else. It's always a call to action. This is what happens in verse 7. And he ordered the army advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. And this was a call to action. 
Um, sometimes this is another thing that oftentimes gets lost in modern faith. My faith, your faith, I see it all around. And I, I, think, um, I think statistics bear this out. I don't think it's just anecdotal evidence because the church is rapidly declining in the West. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I do think one of that, one part of that is I think the church over time has become enamored with just talking about things rather than doing things. I actually think that the church doesn't talk about things and doesn't learn things very much anymore, which that's a whole other issue that we need to get to. But the other thing is that when we actually do think about things and we actually do learn things is we kind of stop there. We don't actually do much of anything with what we've actually heard. And this was a problem because the church was designed as the people of God to advance, to move forward. God's on the move, why? Because he's got this big mission to restore and to bring people into the restoration and to the ultimate promise of his new creation as new humanity. And so if he's always moving, and if the church is at best just kind of talking about things or thinking about things very minutely and not taking action on what God has called us to be and to do, then you can do the math. I mean, things are not gonna work out very well. I mean, the church is certainly gonna decline the, there's going to be people that miss out on the blessing of what God has called us people to do. And we're going to just get caught up standing in one spot, looking at big obstacles, big problems in our world and thinking we're too small to handle it. But what God has called us to be and to do is to call us corporately as one body to walk in in advance. How do we do that? We look, we see, we do it together. We remember what God has provided and then it empowers us and calls us to action. But here's, here's kind of a, the, the last thing that I wanna share with you uh, when it comes to faith, and I think this one's a little counterintuitive too, is that the, actually in the midst of it, there's something that maybe on first reading, I'll just be honest with you, I missed it. I've, I've been reading this passage, I mean, most of my life I've, I've read this passage uh, and intervened with it at different times and different seasons. I don't sit around and read it every day, obviously, but uh, I've heard it a lot. It's a famous story. And I never really came across this last call of faith, but I think it's a really important one to not miss. It's a call to silence. Here's what I mean. Joshua chapter six, verse 10. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout and then shout. Now, on one level, this makes a lot of practical sense. If God's told you to go around and he's kind of prescribed this whole thing, I want you to march around the wall, march around the wall, march around the wall, march around the wall. Don't say anything. And then we're going to shout at the end. And that's how God's going to move. That makes perfect sense. And that's kind of the base level meaning of that. Okay. But there's also something kind of uh, woven into it because remember, everything is following a template. And what God is doing here is a replay of a previous story of faith corporately in a previous generation. And now it's their turn. And so God takes this same template, drops it down in here, and he hits replay on it. Now, I want you to key in on that thing about raising your voices. And then I want us to go back in time to Numbers chapter 14, once again. That night, after they had shared all the stuff for the spies in the land the first time, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. It's the exact same phrase. Uh, it's actually the same language and it's repeated once again. 
All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You see, what's happening here is not just kind of, hey, let's all get together and we're going to jump out and say, attack, you know? No, it's not that. What's happening in here, I believe, at a deep level, is Joshua is having flashbacks. He lived through some very painful things. Because of what they failed to see in the provision of God, they let their problem overwhelm them. And here's what happened to him. He watched his elders die in the wilderness. He watched mothers pass away, fathers pass away. He watched them walking around in circles for 40 years. And if you trace it all back, what was the root cause? It was because the people of God raised their voices and began to murmur and grumble against God, which was a reflection of what they saw. What they said was a reflection of what they actually saw. It's just what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, when he said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. They were speaking where they really were spiritually in matters of faith. They didn't trust God. They didn't believe God. And I think what Joshua is probably essentially saying is what some of you moms and dads say to your kids when you when you go to the supermarket and you say, not one word. <laughs> I don't wanna hear one word. Because here's the reality. What he was telling them to do, let's just be honest, without faith is ridiculous. Let's get up 80 foot tall wall. Let's just walk around it for six days. I mean, you got uh, soldiers coming back, priests coming back, people coming back, and they're supposed to be like, hey, what did we do today? You know, first day, I thought, man, we we're just doing some recon, kind of getting a plan together, you know, warm up, this kind of warm up, all that kind of stuff, you know? And then you'd think, like, I mean, on the second day, maybe some bricks are going to start to fall, and oh, well, okay, well, let's just do it one more time, and some more bricks start to fall, but it wasn't like that. I mean, they were walking around, and nothing was happening. Now, when you're putting out maximum effort You've got some, this big obstacle and problem in front of you, and your leader is saying, just keep walking. Let's walk around the wall one more time. The natural thing to expect is grumbling and murmuring, people raising their voices. God, what are you doing? Joshua, what are you doing? Can you believe what he's doing? I think what Joshua was saying is, I've seen where this goes before. God calls us to see something he presents to us a problem. He has provided for us to do it, but the inclination of all of us is to fail in faith. And I think he knew that. And I think he was trying to protect the people and he was trying to protect a whole generation. He was trying to protect a whole group of people from what? From themselves. You know, when we begin to talk and grumble against God, we're actually hurting ourselves. It feels good, it feels cathartic a little bit to have these conversations, it, it, to voice our doubts and have them confirmed. But something happens when that happens. It doesn't just stay confined. It becomes toxic, it becomes cancerous. It begins, it begins to infiltrate the entire people. Why? Because oftentimes we approach faith like it's an individual faith and it's not. It, it, it's corporate, it's connected, it's together. And Joshua, had seen the damage from previous generations and he was charged to protect the next one. And he understood the corporate 
nature of faith all too well. And so what did he say? Don't do what our parents did. Don't raise your voices. Let's stay silent and let's march. And that's what they did. On, on the seventh day, they marched around. They got up at daybreak, marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. And the seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you this city. Now, there's kind of this interesting little play. They had been silent and hadn't been murmuring or grumbling or speaking against God and his provision. And then there's, a, there's this other little intricate detail is that the first word they spoke was a unified word. Don't miss that. What God called them to do was to shout together. They all shouted together at the same time. And so the first thing that was ever heard as they were going around their problem was a unified shout saying and doing the exact same thing. And I think there's a picture in here for God's people because what it shows us is that it's not going, whatever God wants to do in this generation, whatever God wants to do corporately in any group of people, whenever he wants to move us ahead, it's not gonna happen in pockets. It's gonna happen when unity comes together and the first word we say is we're gonna shout in, in a in a proclamation of we are trusting the provision rather than the problem and we're going to move ahead. And that's exactly what happened. The walls come down at the shout and they're able to all go up in and are able to experience what God called them to experience. Now there's a lot more story in there. I didn't get to all the points, but we're out of time. But what I want to do is I want to wrap up with just basically a summary. Okay. And I want to give you a summary of kind of like seeing, okay, what is faith? In line of this passage, faith is first seeing. So the question is going to be, what do you see? Okay. And the question corporately is going to be, what do you see? And then it's going to be taking what you see, the provision and the problem, and it's going to be assessing. It's going to say, how do we compare these two? How do we compare really? Okay. What's really going on here? And then it's always going to be a call to response. Faith is allegiance to God and allegiance is always revealed in action. It's not re revealed in belief. It's not like what you can say, you believe. Faith is always revealed in response. It's always revealed in action. So the question is always gonna be, how do you respond and how do we respond? And ultimately, I think the passage indicates it's gonna be the question of how do we respond together? How do we together respond to the faithfulness of God? So my question is, what do we see? How do we compare and how will you respond? And how do we do that together? As we finish, I'm gonna ask you just to kind of meditate on that. The man's gonna come out, we're gonna finish up. But what I would like for you to do right now is just to consider what God may be speaking to you based on his word. So if you would, if you'd bow in prayer with me. Father, we thank you today for your faithfulness in our lives. We thank you that you've been writing the same story. You're the exact same God. And we don't have to rely on our own faithfulness to you. We can look to your faithfulness to us. We thank you for Jesus, who is the permanent fixture of our faith. Um, if you're here today and you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, the one he's provided, would you right now just call out to him? 
Just say to him, God, I, I trust in you. I trust in your son, Jesus. I put my faith and trust in him. It can be that simple for you and you can begin the journey of following Jesus into the future. And then also, uh, if you're here today and you're, you're asking questions about, okay, God, what, what is faith calling me to do? Would you just now just ponder those questions? God, what do I see? Lord, how do I compare these things? And then how will I respond? And would you just listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit today to reveal that? We trust that he speaks to us um, and he leads us. And so as you do that, I wanna pray over you and then we'll sing. Father, we thank you today once again for speaking to us right now. I pray you'll speak over everyone right now as they ask these questions. And as we meditate on that, God, I pray, Lord, that you would speak clearly, you would challenge us, and you would encourage us as we follow you together based on what you've provided in your son. It's in your name we pray, amen.